Hi, this is Fayette Hauser, and you're listening to the Pantheon Podcast Network. Pantheon Podcast presents from Hollywood, California, The Devil's Music with Pleasant Gaiman. You are invited to join the Hollywood princess as she explores her lifelong pursuits in the occult, sex, love, and that sinful rock and roll. Ladies and gentlemen, step into the dark parlor of Pleasant Gaiman as she brings you The Devil's Music. Hi, this is Pleasant Gaiman, and you're listening to The Devil's Music Podcast, all about that sinful rock and roll. It's the beat. I know what it does to you. Rock and roll and witchcraft have been two concurrent themes in my life since the age of 12. So that's how I got the idea to do this, to explore two of my favorite things, especially since Whiskers on Kittens doesn't really translate into a podcast. Um, In case you don't know me, I'm a rock and roll witch. I'm a best-selling writer. I was one of the first punks in Los Angeles with a fanzine called Lobotomy, and I was an active part of that mid to late 70s punk scene that I helped create. I went on to book all sorts of clubs and venues in LA, including two of the most seminal punk clubs, Raji's and Cathay de Grand. Um, I lived in a very famous punk rock house called Disgraceland. Legendary, I might add. I'm a painter. I'm an actor. I've been a professional dancer for probably many years, longer than some of you have been alive. I'm still ticking and still taking lickings. Some of you might know me Some of you might not have heard of me, and some of you may have heard of me in the ahem biblical sense. But we're here to have fun, and I'm glad you're joining me. This is Pleasant, and you're listening to The Devil's Music. Today, I'm so excited because I've got a wonderful guest for you. Um, Of course, you all are going to know who it is, or you're going to know who part of this person is. Um, I'd like to introduce you to someone who doesn't need any introduction, the amazingly talented Paul Rubens, a.k.a. the cultural icon, Pee Wee Herman whom I'm sure most of you grew up with, like imitating or referencing. Um, You've probably seen him in 
some of his movies, Pee-wee's Big Top, Pee-wee's Big Holiday. Uh, like I'm blanking out now because I'm on painkillers. More about that later. He's also been in Blow, Matilda, Mystery Men. He's been all over TV. He's got a star on Hollywood Boulevard and he's keeping all of our inner child alive. <laughs> Hi, Paul. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Hello. Hello. Um, so this is our, um, our get together in the midst of pandemic or hopefully towards the end of pandemic. Um, before we go into how you've been productively spending your pandemic, um, I just got to say that I was blown away by the fact that you were born in Peekskill, New York, because I, uh, I was born in New York and I lived right near there. Like, Where? I lived in um, Kent Cliffs, which was closest to Carmel, New York, and Brewster was like the, you know, the closest like railroad stop there. I had an aunt and uncle who owned a liquor store in Carmel, New York. I'm sure my father frequented it. <laughs> I'm seriously sure. Um, what was it called? I just want to know because I'll check that. Um, oh, my gosh. You know, I don't actually know the name of it. I should. Um, I don't know the name of it. But right. I, know, I can tell you this. Uh, Captain Lou Albano, the wrestler that Cindy Lauper used to work with, he uh, met my aunt and uncle in there one time. <laughs> really? When he when he was like at the at the um, height of his fame? <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. I used to go to bars in there when I was like when I was like three, when they used to let kids into bars, I'd be sitting sitting there in a bar. Um, in Carmel, like having a Shirley Temple, and I thought that all the uh, the deer the deer head trophies on the walls were actual deer that were hanging around with us, watching us. <laughs> oh, I know. Um, but so anyway, I I just found that out. That's crazy that we grew up together. But um, when you moved to Florida, like like pretty early on in your childhood, right? And you lived near Ringling Brothers. Yes, we lived in Sarasota, Florida. We moved there when I was in fourth grade and it was the winter headquarters of the Ringling Circus. So there was circus everywhere around there. It was, and that at, the, at that time, I already, you know, way before fourth grade wanted to be an actor. And so that was as close as I had gotten so far in my life to show business like the circus. I actually thought for a while that I might wind up, um, in the circus. I kind of was thinking that, that could have happened to me. Yeah, I'm surprised it didn't happen to me. I didn't grow up near there, but I always wanted to be in, in the circus. Uh, even in the 80s, like I wanted to run away with Circus Vargas when I was living a wild punk rock lifestyle and be a showgirl and ride around on like an elephant's head and stuff. Circus Vargas was so amazing. I had a birthday party one year, the year that I made my circus movie. Um, uh, and the director of the movie, Randall Kleiser, threw a, a circus-themed party, and we had an elephant walk into his house. Oh, my and God. Later in that party, Susan Terrell was riding that elephant. Of course she was. <laughs> it was unbelievable. I will never get that image out of my head. In, your, in the house still, right? Inside the house, yeah. An elephant inside the house. 
Oh my God, that's so amazing. <laughs> um, so also, um, this is something that I, I didn't really, um, I kind of knew it about you, but I didn't know that, um, that you knew Exine Cervenka in Florida and her sister Muriel. Um, who, I did. I had a friend, uh, a very good friend of mine. Um, I don't know whether he went out a couple times or whether he was actually dating um, Exine's older sister. Um, but I met Exine and she was uh, working in a, in a really cool coffee shop. And we just kind of bonded. We just, I don't know. It's one of those... One of those things where you just look at somebody and have some kind of simpatico feeling and uh, we just really liked each other. And then when she um, came out to California, she came out with this guy who had dated her sister and um, they I drove across the country and I think stopped when they hit California at my apartment in Echo Park. And I also remember that... Um, you know, a few months later, she came over to my apartment and was like, oh, my God, I, I met this guy. I, I I joined a poetry workshop and I met this guy and it was John Doe. And so I I was completely like a groupie for X. I mean, I I would go over to their house that you probably knew this place. Also, that little teeny. Identity. Behind the liquor store, right off, right off yeah. of Santa Monica Boulevard, right? Oh yeah, that one was yeah, that one was on La Jolla. That was like the adult books apartment. We started calling it after the song, yeah. Oh and yeah, that, yes, I remember that song. Um, that's when I got this. They gave me the single. I still have the forty-five from of that uh, with with them signing it and stuff. Yeah, I was like, just oh my god, I I I loved that band so much and. Uh, and then I just had this kind of personal connection to them where I sort of felt like, I don't know what I felt like, but, but it, was, it was really cool seeing them, you know, make it so, so big. kind of was coming up at the same time as a lot of those bands like we were all sort of happening at the same time i was like in the groundlings in an improv comedy group and um yeah wasn't was, that like 78 or 77 and 78 yeah yep exactly I, I remember seeing you around like i don't know if you were on my radar in the in the 70s but all like by like the early 80s i I remember seeing you at a lot of places. 
Yeah, eighty and 81 was when um, the Pee Wee Herman show happened that was started at the Groundlings and then moved to um, uh, the Roxy Theater, which was super exciting for me. The, the, <clears throat> I wound up at the Roxy Theater because when I first came out to California to go to Cal Arts to college, the Rocky Horror Show was playing at the Roxy. And that's before my show, that was the, that's the last show, like a, a play with music that played at the Roxy. And I think it might've even been the first one. And uh, when I got ready to move my show from the Groundlings Theater to a real theater, um, I told my agent, so I want to do it at the Roxy. And they were like, the Roxy, you know, that's a music venue. And I said, yeah, but that's where the, Rocky Horror Show play before it was the Rocky Horror Picture Show when it was just the Rocky Horror Show. And it was the hottest ticket in, in L.A. when I moved here to go to college. And so I always remembered that and I really, really wanted it to be there. And uh, I always think it's funny when people that work with you, like your agents, are shocked over things like like. For example, my agents called the Roxy and then called me and they were shocked. They were like, oh, my God, like they yeah, they want to do your show. Like we couldn't believe it. I always want to I always want to say, like, you know, you could pretend you weren't so shocked. I mean, I I'm your client. Like, <laughs> I don't know. But but anyway, it was it was a very exciting time. And yes, I met I, I met everybody around town uh, at that time. Gary Panter, who was very connected both through his first wife, Nicole, and also through, um, uh, you know, doing the, 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 the posters. Yeah, and doing the posters for everybody. That's how I first, Gary was on my radar because I kept seeing posters and stuff. And you remember the, remember the store that Brad Benedict had in, in Century City called Heaven? Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, um, Gary had some, you know, t-shirt designs and yeah, Raw Magazine. And he was, he had designed a cover for Frank Zappa and The Residence and just, I don't know. I just loved his work so much that I, I met him. And then, I don't know, the, I just, you sort of were a writer and I was a comedian. And so we were sort of in, in we were people who had like a, a handle or a tag or something beyond like a wacky, you know, artisty weirdo person, you know, like, you know what I mean? We yeah. like people would, I would be at places where everybody was a musician, but me. And so I would be like, yeah, I'm the comic, I'm the comedian. And you were a musician, but you were in all these places. And for me, I told you this the other day, I always was like, Oh, she's a writer in the middle of all this. She is like a journalist writer. Like that's, that was always so interesting to me. I always like loved that about you. Thank you. I was like, I was kind of like the, the punk rock version of Anais Nin. Um, when, whenever <laughs> my diaries come out, um, hopefully not posthumously. <laughs> um yeah, I used to like write down everything that happened. I mean, I wish I had that kind of time now, like what people were wearing, what, you know, who was getting in fights with each other at the dressing room and the whiskey, describing pieces of conversations, like everyone who played, like just my first impressions of of um, people or just, you know, 
just like going to a party and just writing down what happened at it verbatim, like the next day at school, pretending I was taking notes in like biology class or something like pages and pages of stuff. I couldn't stop. Well, and the stuff you were writing down, the stuff that you had witnessed and been part of was all so amazing and unbelievable. I mean, I, I always feel like we lived in such a, a, like an incredible time, both for art and music. And I mean, just, we were just, I feel so lucky and, and, and also so lucky to still be around, you know, I mean, oh, yeah. sure we both have lost so many people and for so many way in so many ways and so many different things. And so I just, I feel so lucky to still, I'm knocking on some wood right now. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Wait, here, can you hear this on, out there in podcast land? We need all the knocking we can get. Yeah, yes. Um, let's take a little break to hear some music for a moment, and we will be right back. I'm flying! I am the luckiest boy in the world. My wish to fly has come true. I am the luckiest boy in the world I'm so much luckier than you I am soaring I'm exploring Gee, flying fun Hi, here we are again in in the virtual play in Pee Wee's Playhouse, Pee Wee and Pleasant's Playhouse. <laughs> oh, baby, 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 we're playing house together. Um, so yeah, let's talk about um some of that um like late seventies, early eighties, other Hollywood stuff because like I remember um like um. Just, just like the wildest house parties or the most insane stuff ever, like just happening at gigs that would never in a million years happen. And anytime I've been like talking about um, those times, which I always call in punk rock, like as though we're talking about in the Mesozoic era or in the <laughs> or in medieval times. Um, what was like? What was like some of the wildest stuff you witnessed, either when you were at Cal Arts or like coming into Hollywood or or doing. Any kind of oh my God. I mean, stuff. I wouldn't even know where to begin with that. I, I, I literally, you know, I mean, it's a cliche to go like, I've seen it all, but you know, I think we're two people who could say that I've really, I don't feel like I've seen everything. And I used to have a, um, a friend a long time ago who was a brilliant comedian who, would say uh, in her act, <clears throat> I'm from Colton, California. It's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. And <laughs> I always felt like, kind of like that, you know, like I just felt like, wow, I have really, I have seen just about everything. You know, there's, I'm sure there's a few things that could shock me, but I, 
I'm writing a book and I'm trying to, I'm writing my memoir and I'm trying to remember all of those things. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, Cal arts is a whole different category for, for anybody listening that doesn't know what Cal arts is. Cal arts is short for California Institute of the arts. It was, um, the art school that was started by Walt Disney and his concept for that school was to put all the visual and performing arts in one building under one roof so that in theory, musicians could work with actors, actors could work with painters, um, dancers could work with filmmakers, that, that all the arts would co-mingle and get to like, you know, feed off each other and work together. And so, you know, and it was in Valencia, California, which when I got there, they had just built that campus and it was brand new. It wasn't carpeted yet. I remember one of the highlights for me the first year of CalArts was watching these two guys carpet the entire building because everybody was a way out avant-garde, you know, artist except these two carpet guys that were like the local, you know, guys that lived in, in Newhall. That was the town right next to Valencia. Valencia wasn't even built yet. Valencia was a, was a planned community, but, um, anyway, CalArts was just uh, so way out and so avant-garde and it was exactly what I was looking for. I was really looking for something that was just going to be, you know, unique in every way. And so, I mean, gosh, everything about it, everybody there was just so interesting. And I saw so many crazy things. I, 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 I can't think of a specific thing. I, I, I'll, for some reason, I guess this is a crazy, this is sort of a crazy thing that I did one time, but I, I one time went to, um, I don't remember where it was. It was something like a, like Thrifties or Pick and Save or some kind of like a super cheapo place and bought like a set of, I, I bought like plates, China plates that were, I think, you know, probably 29 cents a piece or something. And I remember buying like 10 plates and taking them back to uh, CalArts to the dorm and throwing them one by one, hurling them at a brick the wall. wall. Yeah. I used to do that. I did that in boarding school when I was in boarding school, except I stole them from the cafeteria. And then I started a fad with everybody doing that. Really? It's so cathartic. I, I, I feel a little bad, like talking about it. Cause I don't, you know, I don't, maybe I'm, I'm, um, you know, I don't inflating my own worth here, but I don't want to start anything, but you know, it's so, it was such a cathartic, unbelievable thing. I also, I worked in, in a theater in Florida before I uh, came to CalArts. I, I worked in a repertory theater there and um, that company every summer, once a year, uh, I think it was on the 4th of July would have a pie fight and it was mm. on the beach and in order to get into the pie fight, you had to have four pies and they would hold it at, at a time when um, the local supermarket chain was running a, you know, four for a dollar frozen cream pie. Um, Go sale. And so there, that was just unbelievable. That's like a cathartic thing, too. If you've never been in a pie fight to just you can do it three times, you can throw the pie 
you, you can peel it off your face and throw it again. And then that, that person can throw it one more time. And we would do it on the beach. And after it, it only lasted like three minutes or whatever. And then everyone would be covered with pie. And we just run down to the, to the Gulf of Mexico and jump in the water. I went to a pie fight in, near Reading, Pennsylvania once after I was an adult. And um, my boyfriend, who was the one that took me there to visit his family, was telling me about how this pie fight had been going on for decades. And it was it was at a church. It was like at a Lutheran church. And so that was where it mainly was. But it wound up also going into people's yards and stuff. And so I made us wear superhero capes and masks. And then also we did something that I'd never been to a pie fight before, but it just seemed this seemed like good military strategy to hide pies like under bushes and like, you know, like under the oh, ammunition. Yeah. Yeah. So it would just be like, um, you know, accessible when you needed new ammo. <laughs> and we we totally fucking ruled that pie fight. Like, yeah, that was good. And that was at the it was at the police chief's house af- after um, the after party was at the police chief's house and he was wasted drunk. And it was it was great. That was that was like real America for me. But that that was the only pie fight I've ever been in. Although I went, I would have one with you. Oh, I I haven't been in one. I only was in that one in Florida, and we did it twice. Though I did it two years in a row, and I still think about it all the time. It was just a phenomenal thing. I mean, you're making me kind of think like maybe there's some way to organize some kind of a of a pie fight, although I tell you, it's so messy. It's just so messy. The idea of doing it at the beach was kind of a brilliant idea because you could just jump in the water. You know what I always loved in movies when, um, you know, like in in the Three Stooges or in any slapstick um, movie from like the 20s through the 40s or, you know, any March Brothers film, when someone gets a pie thrown at them and then they just like, they just sit there for a second, like they're sort of absorbing Oh, yeah, their take. I love that. Yeah, I love that, too. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, one time that, um, at, a, at a, my band, The Screaming Sirens, played in Berkeley, and this bald guy came in, and we were already drunk. I mean, we were always drunk at shows. And um, he came backstage, and he had shopping bags, and he said, I have a favor to ask you girls. And he said, my name is the pie man. And he 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 had a fetish about this, but I, I don't think at the time I realized it was a fetish, you know, because I mean, I thought fetishes just involved like whips and chains and velvet underground kind of shit. Um, but anyway, so he set up this tarp and he wanted us all to throw pies at him. And that was fucking amazing. And we, we were we were just going nuts. And there was like, you know, like pie cream and banana cream because those were like real pies like all over the place and he was just like really happy and we were happy because it is, that was just, I mean, A, we were like bombed shit drunk, but B, it was, it was so cathartic, like you said, just to like get your aggressions out. Like and it's so entertaining. It's just completely entertaining. It's, it's cathartic to actually throw a pie, but it's really entertaining to see it, you know, land on somebody's and, face. Yeah. <laughs> um, Wait, has there been pie fights in your movies? I'm sorry if I don't know this. No, you know, I don't think I've ever, I mean. What the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah, I I don't know. I'll tell you, you know, part of why there may not have been a pie fight is I always tried to do work that kids could see in addition to adults. So 
I always, you know, now that I think about it, a pie in the face might have been something that I would have not really wanted to do because I would think like, you know, a parent would come up to me later and go like, you know, you see this stain on my shirt? That's from the pie that my little kid threw. And you know who gave him that idea? You. <laughs> and I always felt like, like when I was making my circus movie, we had a scene where I was going to be, I was trying to figure out what was my place in the circus. And one of the things was going to be fire eating. And so I was sitting at a table and I had a whole meal of fire, like a glass of fire and a plate with fire. And I was like trying to eat fire like it was a dinner. And then I thought, you know what? Like, that's a, that would be like a fun, th if I were a kid and watched that movie, I'd be like, oh, let me go home and like, Burn the house down. You know? no, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, well, I just thought like, yeah, or, or burn myself, you know, like it just seemed like it would be dangerous. So I always tried to police all that stuff. And that's probably why there's not a pie fight. Although it's also the other reason could be I just never thought of that incredible idea. Um, I think we should organize a mass like invitation only pie fight somewhere when, when the when the when all the restrictions it's a great like, idea i mean a charity a charitable pie fight oh, would yeah. to raise money for something yeah that would be great and we could all it could be like the hunger games but with with pies <laughs> that would be so good so um okay so why don't we now now that i was talking about restrictions tell tell everybody in podcast land um the stuff that you've been working on during during the pandemic or right pre-pandemic that might didn't come come to light yet. Well, I you know, I can't believe how busy I've been during the pandemic. I I I'm basically very lazy. And so I feel like I don't want to complain because I'm happy that I'm busy, but I don't really, I'm annoyed that I'm busy sometimes. So I've been doing a bunch of stuff during the pandemic. I've been writing my memoir, which I I have been talking about for decades and finally, finally started. Um, I've been, spent almost the last year trying to figure out like what team of people to engage with, to make a documentary, to be the subject of a documentary. I, um, about four years ago, I started thinking like, maybe I should, you know, have a documentary. And then I, then I, every time I would walk that down the road a little bit, I would think like, oh, Paul, you know, I mean, really a documentary about yourself. Like, I, I just always would think that it was this kind of ego driven, crazy idea. And so I, I didn't never really did anything about it. And then all of a sudden about I don't know, two or three years ago, Won't You Be My Neighbor came out. And as soon as that doc came out, people started contacting me and going, you know, would you be the subject of a documentary? And I thought, wow, this wasn't such a crazy idea. And as it sort of stepped up, I kind of, I, I started to realize, you know, if you don't do a documentary soon, someone may do it without you, which would be weird. So... So I, I, about a year ago, I just decided, okay, I'm going to really get active about trying to figure it out. And so I started, you know, listening to people's pitches about it. And uh, out of the blue, some people contacted me and um, 
well, I can say who it was now. It was uh, the Safety the Safety brothers who who uh, directed that brilliant movie from last year, Uncut Gems, with Adam Sandler, and uh, asked me if I was interested in being the subject of a documentary. And I met with them, and uh, I just loved everything. I loved their vibe. I loved everything they they had to say about it. And they knew they had somebody they. Uh, recommended that they thought would be a great director. They wanted to produce it. And so um, I met with this director and I was so cautious about it that I started to, to, we we got on Zoom calls like three times a week for months before I finally felt like, okay, I guess I, I guess I trust this guy. So, um, and then the, the third producer of the movie is a woman who, when I made the movie Blow many years ago, um, the director, Ted Demi, um, had an assistant. And I loved this assistant. She was just fantastic. And he passed away right after the movie was over. And she um, moved to New York and became Martin Scorsese's assistant. Wow. And 20, 20 years later, last year, she produced Uncut Gems, the Irishman and Joker in one year, three, wow. three, of the, three of the biggest movies of the year. So she and the Safdie brothers are producing um, my documentary and it's on, we made a deal for it at HBO and HBO uh, asked us, they turned it into a two part documentary. So um, it's a little bit longer than we were thinking originally, but I, you know, I've had a very, long, rich life. And so, you know, I'm not worried that I don't have enough stuff for a two-parter. And um, so I have a documentary that I'm, we're just gearing up to start actually working on. And uh, I made a radio, I made a pilot for a radio show that's going to air any minute on KCRW called the Pee Wee Herman Radio Hour. It's all finished and uh, I love it. I, it's Pee Wee Herman being a disc jockey, like kind of an old school um, Wolfman Jack inspired kind of uh, um, disc jockey. I, I take uh, phone calls, live phone calls. I have a musical, uh, a, a musical guest interview. I play music. Um, I do the weather and and um, uh, and uh, um, traffic, and uh, we have a contest, and uh, it's really it came out great. I I really really like it, and uh, it's going on KCRW, which seems like a gr I always loved KCRW, so and still do. So I'm happy that's going to be there. I have a game show that I I just. Um, I feel like it's getting very close to getting made. Um, that's inspired originally by my love of You Bet Your Life, the old Groucho Marx television show, which that show is actually being remade now by Jay Leno, rebooted. Um, my you show is- have a shoe polished mustache. <laughs> what? I said you should have a shoe polished mustache. Oh, I. you know what? I. I'd love to have a mustache, actually. I, I My show is really nothing like You Bet Your Life. It's really just inspired by how brilliantly funny Groucho Marx was on that show and how he was really funny with real people and, and that the game itself was almost secondary to how odd the people were and how funny he was. Like, every time I would watch that show... 
I would see the people come out, the two contestants, and I would think like they can't be as, you know, they look so normal. They can't be crazy. They can't hit this on the nose every single time. And yet they did. I don't know how they did it, but there was never, ever a normal, plain old, boring, non-interesting person. The people would always look like your next door neighbor that, you know, that that you had no idea was kooky. And then they would open their mouth and my jaw would always drop. I would just be like, where did they find these people? So I have a game show. I have a couple of uh, movie scripts that I've been kind of polishing and and trying to sell. I wrote a Pee Wee Herman cartoon I'd been working on many years ago. and wanted to, I had artwork for it and a bunch of characters, but I didn't really have a handle or a hook to it all. And I came up with that and uh, wrote it with a, with a friend of mine. And I think it's really good. And uh, I guess last, my most recent thing is I was talking to a friend of mine and she said something about, Uh, We were talking about vintage shows, TV shows, novelty shows like Gilligan's Island and stuff that were just I consider novelty shows. And while we were talking, I got an idea for a novelty show. And so I've been writing. I almost finished with a pilot script for this novelty show that. It's such a crazy but obvious idea that I don't really want to tell anything about it because I'm afraid somebody will. Still yeah, keep, keep it, keep it, mom. I saw, I saw Skipper from Gilligan's Island and Ralph's, the rock and roll. Oh Ralph. my God, I would have fainted. I did. I was fainting. I was like, I was like sneaking around, stalking, pretending I was looking at canned peas, and I really wanted him to like hit me like in the face with the, with the, his Skipper hat and call me little buddy. But I couldn't. Like, I'm too. Like, I saw Tim Curry once in a supermarket too, and I couldn't. I couldn't like. You know, because of like growing up in Hollywood, like most of my life, I didn't want to like, you know, interrupt them like when they're just trying to fucking shop like a normal person. But the the Tim Curry one was weird because I was in full stage makeup, but wearing like kind of ratty sweats because I was on my way to a dance gig. And it's like midday and I had on like, you know, glitter eye makeup and all this kind of stuff. And um, it was at a, it was at a deli counter. And the clerk said to me, and, and I saw this like older man with kind of like a, a gray fro, you know, and like docker shorts and stuff. And he was, he had a really good voice. He was like, might I have some of these pastries, please? And I was like, wow, that voice sounds familiar. And then I was like, maybe he's like a radio announcer. And then right then the girl that was serving me was like, oh, I love your glitter makeup. And he turned around and I realized it was Tim Curry. And I was just like, and I was once second away from saying a lot of this is your fault but then i you know like <laughs> if, if i would have been like him i wouldn't have wanted to be recognized looking like that so i was just like thank you and i got my stuff and i walked out of the um supermarket like even more fan struck than i was when i was in an elevator with dog the bounty hunter <laughs> um, oh my word wow but then i stayed in, in the in the parking lot like pretending I was like loading groceries and got late for my gig just because I wanted to see if, if he would come out. But I think he went out the other door, but yeah, celebrity, <laughs> celebrity. Or he's still there. Yeah. He might still be there. I'll have to, I'll have to go. I'm not going to go there on crutches. Although maybe wasn't there like crutches in the Rocky horror show. Speaking of that, I think there was, or no, yeah. that, that other doctor was in the wheelchair. That's who it was. I forgot about. Oh yeah. 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 
Oh, what a great movie that was. Wow. Oh my God. I we my band got to um when we were working with Lou Adler, who produced that movie and who also, you know, co-owned the Roxy, my band the Ringling Sisters, he had us do a, um he had us do the twenty-fifth um anniversary of the Rocky Horror Show and it was at 20th Century Fox. And, oh wow. And um of course my band, we all took like well, Meatloaf showed up at the um at the sound check wearing like white brush denim pants and a, a white satin slim fast tour jacket, like a baseball jacket, tour jacket. And we were, we were kind of appalled. Sorry, meatloaf, but they just didn't seem, you know, didn't seem like that was the best fashion idea. Anyway. Um, so we were playing, we were playing and doing backups on like original songs with everybody from the cast, except for Tim Curry. But then in the middle of it, as was, you know, my MO well into like the, the nineties. Um, we all took mushrooms in the middle of this set, like during a break on stage. And then we were coming on to them at the, <laughs> by the time that it was over. And then it was so hard because all these people from the fan club were there and the whole 20th century Fox lot was filled with people, but they all only looked like magenta, Columbia, Frankenfurter. So if you were trying to find someone, you'd be like, oh yeah, I just saw her with like, you know, um, whoever, like <laughs> with Rocky. And I'd be like, which one? <laughs> it was <laughs> nice. We should take a, a little break for some music and then we'll, we'll come right back. All right. It's astounding. Time is fleeting. Madness takes its toll. But listen closely. Not for very much longer. I've got to keep control. we are again so um oh with stuff that you were doing yeah i think i came to the end of what i was doing i mean now i'm just waiting um i'm waiting for some calls to happen that some of these projects are going you know my book i still have to finish my documentary i got a deal to 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 do it with hbo but now i actually have to go make the documentary um, that's been such a trip already because I'm putting the, this filmmaker in touch with all these people out of my past. And, uh, you know, I've always been such a private person. And, I, you know, I basically, you know, when, when Pee Wee's Big Adventure, the first Pee Wee movie came out in 1985 and my credit came on the screen that said written by Paul Rubens. Co I mean, I co-wrote it with two other people. But when my credit rolled, nobody knew that I was Paul, that Pee Wee Herman and Paul Rubens were the same people. I, no one really knew my real name. Uh, all my friends would always go like, God, it, you know, ever since you've become known, it's so annoying to be your friend because people, everybody comes up when they know that I know you and go like, is he really like that? Does he really talk like that? Does he dress like that? And I, you know, I spent a lot of time and energy making people think that was a real person because I just thought that, you know, conceptually, I just thought that was really interesting. And I thought it was like way more interesting than if you watch that 
movie and and knew I was an actor. You know, I like the idea that you might think that was a real person and that somebody built a whole movie around like this, you know, oddball. Mm -hmm. So um, it was just, I don't know how I tripped off into that. What did that have to do with what we were talking about? Oh, just like when we were talking about movies and stuff, but that, I mean, I think that's so cool that like people thought that that was really, really you because I mean, like I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a comparable thing. Like my mom, um, in the fifties, she dated Joel Gray for a few minutes when they were both like struggling actors in New York. But when I was going insane over cabaret, when that was shaping what my adulthood was going to be, <laughs> um, with like glitter rock and just rock and roll and art and debauchery and stuff. Um, I was obsessed with Joel Gray as the MC and cabaret. Right. And so my mom knew that I was like cutting school to go and watch it over and over and over all day in, in the, in the theater, you know, like, in, you know, in the movie theater. And she, she, you know, she got mad at me, obviously, but then um, she's like, you know, I used to date Joel Gray and, um, you know, she had also dated like Dr. Smith on Lost in Space, but I didn't give a fuck about him. Like if she would have dated the robot, I would have thought that was hot, but I didn't care about Dr. Smith. But as soon as she told me she dated Joel Gray, I remember just walking up to my room and just going, wow, wow. Because then I real I thought he was the MC in Cabaret. I mean, I thought that it just seemed like that. I mean, okay, admittedly, I was a teenager, but I wasn't a, a dumb teenager. But I mean, that was just, I was like, I remember thinking, well, my mom is like, must be pretty kinky. <laughs> like, and then I, I, I finally, like, years later, when there was like, internet and stuff i just looked up like early joel gray acting headshots and i was like oh <laughs> yeah but i mean even like what did i mean now that we we're talking about the march brothers before like what about even that like i kind of you know until seeing the old reruns of you bet your life i had no idea that groucho marx didn't look like that 24 7 or i wouldn't have like spotted harpo marx or any you know what i mean those that that's like the kind of character that that peewee is you know and that that's so fucking cool because you can kind of be anonymous that way you know i was i i really was at the height of my fame i could go anywhere and people never recognize me wait and you are <laughs> i would try to get recognized sometimes and i would kid with my friends and go like you know i'm gonna wear my peewee suit to that just so i make sure i get recognized but yeah, I throw on a pair of eyeglasses and, you know, just have like a little day's, day's stubble. And, you know, I hold my face in a certain way to be Pee Wee Herman. So if my face is in repose, like I, I do tend to look differently. I mean, not hugely different, but different enough that people didn't connect it or people weren't expecting to see me or out of that suit. I don't know what, I mean, whatever it was, it turned out to be really lucky because, uh, I did have like a lot of anonymity, which was fantastic. Well, your, your, your whole body language of Pee-wee is like so different. I mean, that also was like just really amazing to see because like just every part of you is different and it doesn't look like acting. It looks like you like to sort of slip into that assimilation like really easily, but like, it, like it's in, ingrained, you know what I mean? At, I mean... I kind of did. I mean, yeah, it was, it was, it was like that and is like that still. I you just, for some reason was making me think of like, you know, people who are, 
who have alter egos. It's kind of a small club. There's not that many people. There's uh, like my friend Elvira. There's, yeah. um, I was friends with probably most people listening to this don't know who Minnie Pearl is. Um, oh my God. She had, I, yeah, Minnie Pearl was. Somebody, her? Did you know her? I got to know her. Yeah. I was at a, an event one year called Comic Relief and uh, I was in a tent with literally every single person in comedy. I could not believe, I couldn't believe who was there. I mean, somebody bumped into me and I turned around, it was Jerry Lewis. And I mean, there were like literally every idol of mine from comedy was there. And I looked across the room and the only other person that was like dressed like a freak, everyone was dressed normal. I'm in my peewee suit and I look across the room and there's Minnie Pearl. And for those of you who don't know who Minnie Pearl is, Minnie Pearl had an alter ego. She was like a hillbilly comedian. She was, she was part of the grand old Opry and was on hee haw and was, um, was, a was, was the, the premier comedian of country music, uh, the, the world of country. And, um, she, she had, had a tag on her hat. She had a price tag hanging from her straw hat and wore like a gingham dress. And I mean, she had a costume on, like she was dressed like nobody else in the whole thing. And we looked at each other from across the room and was like, you know, some kind of like, oh my God, like we're the two people here dressed up. Um, we're the two people here with alter egos. And uh I got to know her and it was really amazing. She was really interesting. And talk about somebody you would never in a million years recognize. She was actually very, you know, um, glamorous and regal. And, uh, you know, she, she was nothing like who she, who that alter ego was. So she, Minnie Pearl would, would tell these incredible stories. Like she would say, you know, we were in, sitting on the floor in the back of a little airplane, me and Hank Williams, and uh, he was strumming his guitar and playing this beautiful song. I wonder whatever, I never heard that song again. I wonder, wonder whatever happened to that song. And I would just have goosebumps, you know, thinking about like a lost Hank Williams song. And, wow, yeah. And a little, you know, two-prop airplane flying around wherever they were. I don't know. It's really... That's wild. I um, got to meet so many people. I swear to God, I literally, to be Pee Wee Herman in the 80s and go to a party, I never really went out that much because I was always working. But when I ever did go to a party, and I would always try to go when so that I would be recognized. So I would, you know, I would look as much like my Pee Wee Herman as possible without doing my hair and putting on that suit. And I would get, I mean, I would just get to meet every single person at the party. It was just incredible. Like the people who would come over and, you know, be fans and be say, say really beautiful, nice stuff to me. It was, it was cool. What, what year was that when, um, was it, was this in 1997? Was it when I was go-go dancing with the go-go's that you introduced them on a tricycle? At the Greek theater, or was that something else? I think it was way before that. Like it was their first, their first appearance at the, um, at the Greek. I think it was eighty something. I, I In think fact, I right. know, 
I think it was 87. I I just had to look it up because Gina, as I'm sure you know, is working on that photography book. And yeah. there was a, there's a couple pictures of me backstage with the whole band. And um, they asked me to introduce them. And I was really not known at that time. So I think it was actually 83. I think it was before a big adventure came out because I remember the the lights went down at the Greek theater and they thought like they thought that um, the Go Go's were going to be there when the lights came up and I was there and people didn't know who I was and I was just I I just wrote something for the book to go in w w a little thing about introducing them then and the woman who uh, ran the Greek theater at that time I'm still friendly with and I asked her if she remembered anything and she said all I really remember is the audience throwing hot dogs at you <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. but people like didn't were not you know the, the people were like get off get out of here <laughs> like <laughs> but it was really fun and I I I you know I know you have like this gigantic history with that band I I wrote a little essay about just you know, that was the other band that I felt like I was like an imaginary groupie for that band. I really didn't know anybody in the band, but I would just like, you know, go to all the early shows at the mask and stuff. And I, I and I would be like, you know, hey, and people sort of knew me because I was kind of an up and comer person. But I didn't really, really know anybody. But I would just be like, you know, fantasizing that I knew all those girls. And uh, it was like super exciting to me. And and then when they, you know, when they crossed over and became so commercial, I I had this enormous, you know, feeling of pride and like I, you know, they were my band, kind of the same as X, although yeah. I, had, I had a more personal connection to X than I really did to. Uh, I, I felt like that about both of uh, both of them, the Go-Go's and X, too, because it was just so, it was so amazing to see it coming from the mask, which was. That was like our like secret playhouse and punk rock, you know? And then who who the hell would have ever thought that like they would get signed to labels or still be playing like 45 clock, clock, clock years later. And you know what I mean? Now that, you know, just lauded. And I mean, it's, it's so incredible. I always think of like that, those punk rock times as like, um, you know, how other people think of as their high school years or something, you know, because I, I was never in school and I'm sure almost everyone that was involved in that wasn't at the time either. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, that was an amazing time. I, I really feel so lucky to have gotten to be even on the periphery of it, you know, um, it was really cool. How did, how did you know um, Larry Fishburne, who was, um, like I, I, because I remember when I found out he was on your on your show as Cowboy Curtis. Like all I could think of him like was, "Wow, that's the doorman from Cash from Janet Cunningham's Club." Like another really? like, legal speakeasy, yeah. Oh wow! Like I didn't even realize. I mean, I think I was. Wait, what was the club? What was the name of the club? It was Cash. It was C A S H that Janet Cunningham had. It was right near the zero zero. On okay, listen, you're going to you're going to maybe know I'll come back to that in a second. I'll tell you 
where I, how I knew Lawrence Fishburne, but then I want to come back and ask you a question. I could even ask it off air because I'm trying to figure out something I'm writing in my book was an evening that I spent many, many years ago with David Bowie. And I took David Bowie to a club and I'm trying to figure out the name of the club. And you probably would know the name of this club. It was like an after hours private club that no one, you know, like most people didn't know about. And it was at the same time as Helena's, but mm-hmm. it wasn't, but it wasn't Helena's and, but it was in Silver Lake and it had a staircase that went upstairs and the, Oh my was- God. Yeah, 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 yeah. I will. I, I've got that in my diaries. Unfortunately, I wasn't there on that night when you brought Bowie there. I would have, you know, would have embarrassed all of us. Um, <laughs> oh, I mean, I'll just say one thing about that story. That story begins with being being at a at a at a Grammy and after Grammy party and sitting at a table next to David Bowie, who I I'd, I'd met a few times, and um, and. I actually turned to David Bowie and said, do you want to get out of here? (laughs) And David Bowie, to my surprise, went like, yeah, yeah. And me and the woman that I was there with and David got in my car and we drove to this club. And I remember walking in and and feeling like, you know, hey, I'm walking in here. My plus one is David Bowie. (laughs) And having like literally every head in the place turn and go like, you know, oh my God, he's with David Bowie. I mean, it was like really kind of an, un and you know, I mean, I wasn't friends with David Bowie or anything like that, but that was certainly an amazing, amazing thing. Lawrence Fishburne, to go backwards for a second, when my show was playing at the Groundlings Theater, the Pee Wee Herman show, before it moved to the Roxy, we had a kid who was still in high school going to Hollywood High, whose name was Paul. And he was the follow spot operator. I don't even really remember how he wound up as the follow spot operator there, but he was the follow spot operator. And his best friend, who also was going to school with him at Hollywood High, was Lawrence Fishburne. And so I knew Lawrence Fishburne. He had already been in Apocalypse Now. He was an actor and I knew him from, he was the sidekick to this follow spot operator. But then years later, several years later, that would have been 80, 81. In in 1986, I went to New York and when we were casting Cowboy Curtis, I could not find an actor to play Cowboy Curtis. I was looking for an African-American actor and I could not find anybody that I really liked. And I only knew one African-American actor in New York and it was Lawrence. And I called him and said, you know, would you please come down here and audition for this? And he came down and just nailed it in one second. And that was that. That was so, so incredible to get to work with him at that point in his career. And uh, I'm still friends with him. I love him. He's he's just one of the the nicest, nicest people people ever um. he's so nice he um i mean for me personally like i mean you know like when i started dancing like doing all dance he was the first person um when i was um at the beginning of my belly dancing career that ever took me at 20 and in those days that was a lot of money and um but i know it was because of you know because of like him 
you know, just being around the Hollywood punk scene and stuff. And then he used to go to that restaurant a lot because the food there was great. You know, so anytime I came in there, people would be like, whoa, um, Lawrence Fishburne asked if you were dancing tonight. <laughs> and I, oh, I would be like, cool. you know, just make a, a diva face, like not saying how we knew each other. <laughs> yeah, he's such a nice person. Hi, Larry. <laughs> anyway, um, oh my God, the, the David Bowie story. I'm so jealous. I tried to get Lawrence Fishburne to be on my Family Feud team, Celebrity Family Feud. I'm like the game show. I'm turning into the game show guy now. I've been on Wheel of Fortune, Celebrity Wheel of Fortune, and now I've just completed my appearance on Celebrity Family Feud, which I have to say, you know, I'm... Wait, were you, whose family? Was it with your family or were you like guest? I was the, no, I was the team captain and I put together a team. My team includes... Here's my team. You're hearing it first. I, I never even told this to anybody yet. And it hasn't aired yet. But my team is Epatha Merkerson, who was Reba the Mail Lady on Pee Wee's Playhouse and went on to, to be on 150 seasons of Law and & Order and is now on, uh, I think it's Chicago Med, one of those Chicago shows. Um, Jack Kay... Jack Hay Harry from the from the sitcom 227, mm -hmm. which if you're not familiar with Jack Hay or 227, 227 was the spin-off show from the Jeffersons when yeah, the yeah. Jeffersons made Marla Gibbs had her own show called 227. And the breakout star of that show was they never called her a streetwalker or a hooker, but she was kind of like the hooker that lived in the same building was Jack A. And she was real saucy. And like, she had a whole like really funny character that I loved so much that I had my manager call that show up and go, is there any way Pee Wee Herman could be on that show? And they wrote me an episode and I was on an episode of 227 and got to meet Jack Hay, and I'm still friends with her, and she's on, on my team. And then the other two people on my team are Drew Carey and Joe Manganiello, my co-star oh in the last <laughs> Pee-wee movie. That's amazing. So when it is was that really fun. Oh, and we played against my very, very good friend, David Arquette, and his team of all wrestlers from AEW. <laughs> That's so true. that was kind of amazing, too. And David and I have a very, very unique bond in that I made David into a vampire in the original movie of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I forgot. So, yeah, that's a very well we've never forgotten because it's it's a unique bond to yeah, definitely. That's kind of like lover's father figure, kind of Nosferatu, like you've known each other for centuries type of thing. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. No, I bit his neck and turned him into a vamp. Maybe that's why David Bowie went with you. Does that timeline follow through because of the hunger? Like he recognized Well, one of David them. Bowie. No, I'm kidding, liked, I'm kidding. <laughs> David Bowie liked Pee Wee Herman. And I'll just say this too, just to, just to really name drop. Another person who loved Pee Wee Herman, Prince. Both oh my God, David Bowie! Like I, I had the pleasure of knowing both of them just a little tiny bit, um, but Prince was uh, 
Prince loved Pee Wee's Big Adventure and particularly loved that Pee Wee dance with those with those big shoes on and stuff. And uh, I got to go on stage several times with Prince and, you know, he would like do a break in the middle of a song and like play like, you know, some kind of crazy jazzy version of tequila. And I would like dance and he would laugh and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I got to go to his house a few times. And it was, I went to, to Minneapolis and uh, went to a Halloween party. He invited me to, I mean, it was like, he was very, very shy. So it was like a hard, um, wasn't like, I don't know, wasn't in the cards for me to become best friends with either of those people. But um, yeah, those are my two favorite names to name drop that I knew both of those people, even slightly, you know. That, that That's just unbelievable. I mean, the, the closest I got to even meeting David Bowie was at the Mud Club in New York in like 1979. And there was rumors going around that he was going to show up that night, you know, and um, we were in this place that was sometimes just a normal room and sometimes a VIP room. It was just sort of hidden away. It wasn't locked or anything. And um, I'd, I'd um, left my leather jacket in there, which was actually safe to do in those days. You know, there wasn't like a lot of theft going on while I went into the other room. And then all of a sudden the whole club just kind of went <laughs> like a big suction thing. And um, I was immediately like, wow, Bowie must be here. Cause you know how like, you know, it's like when you see one of those like nature wildlife shows and all the birds change direction and that's kind of what happened. And so I walked back to the room to get my coat and apparently that's where he was because there was a whole bunch of people pushing. But then I saw this girl I know that, that was in a band and she, and she was like a total Bowie freak. And she was like in absolute hysterics, just running out of there. And, and I was like, is, is Bowie back there? And she was like, ah! like just sort of gesturing with her hands. And then, so we got back in there and it wasn't even that crowded yet. Like it hadn't totally, you know, gotten like that, but he was fucking sitting on my leather jacket. And, um, oh my God. Wow. And I, I was, I was with someone and he's like, Oh my God, Bowie is sitting on your leather. And they're like, go up and ask him to get off of it. And I was like, I can't. Cause I mean, what do you, what do you say? Like, <laughs> hi, I've loved you since I was 12. Will you please get your fucking ass off my leather jacket. I mean, like, and then, and then, um, I was just like, I was like, I hope I'm, I'm like, in my head, I was like, I'm inhaling the same oxygen that Bowie's breathing. Like, I, oh my God, maybe I'm getting pieces of his DNA inside me. I was like, and then finally he got up and I was just like, I mean, I was just like, whoa, whoa, Bowie sat on my leather jacket. You came to see my show about a decade ago in New York, um, the Pee Wee Herman show that I rebooted from my 1981 show. I, 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 tweaked it a little bit and we did it in Los Angeles downtown and then we took it to Broadway for 10 weeks and he came to see it one night and uh I lectured everybody backstage before the show like you know at the end of the show tonight you know David Bowie's coming backstage and like you guys all have to you know be extremely calm like please you know don't like be freaky fans and don't like you know no photos and that kind of stuff and everybody was amazing actually one person though was was not and like you know freaked out and was like very fan fanned out and got a picture and I it was easy for me to like, you know, chide everybody because I knew I would get a picture. I was Peely, so <laughs> I didn't have to worry. So I have like a great picture of me and David from that 
thing. The only, really the only picture, but, and I don't have a picture. In fact, uh, you know, if anybody out there is listening and has a picture of me and Prince, I, you know, I don't know. I guess this just shows how sort of unconscious I was at the time that it never occurred to me to, to go like, hey, can we get our picture taken? Or, you know, I mean, I documented a lot of stuff, but I don't I don't have a picture. of. Well, also, I, th- I think picture taking culture, even at just a few years ago, wasn't then what it is now. Do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. It's like true. if there was photographers there, that's one thing. But like, I have, I, I have like in a drawer, like tons of those cardboard disposable cameras that I was always too wasted or drunk to even write. I have no idea what the fuck they are. They could be like scandalous backstage stuff, or it could just be normal, you know, on tour, like out the window of a van. I don't know what's on them, but like that didn't like now you know, everyone takes pictures of everything. But like, even when I first got an iPhone, which was years and years ago, I remember like going, I have to wait for one really good shot so I don't waste it. And then I'd be like, duh, this isn't film. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I had a camera though. And I took lots and lots of pictures, but I, it never occurred to me to get a picture with a few people that I wish I did. Yeah. And then before that, I, I, a lot of my early photos from movie sets and stuff are Polaroids when... I didn't have a camera and you couldn't bring a camera on a set. And the only way to document it, if you were me, if you had like a little, little teeny part in something was to go up to like the continuity person or the prop department or somebody who had a, who had a Polaroid and go like, could you take it? You know, I have like a, like, could you take this picture of me and John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd on the set of the blues brothers? You know, I mean the, the only pictures I have from the blues brothers, uh, Cheech and Chong, like my earliest stuff is our Polaroid pictures that I talked, you know, they were like, sure, I'll take a picture for you. Yeah. Wow. That, yeah. That's so, that's so, that's so different. Lou Adler. I was going to bring up Lou Adler because Lou Adler, I think produced the first Cheech and Chong movie. Yeah, he did. I was, I was in that too, as an extra. And that was like milk and cookies were in it. And it was the germs like second show. And that was at the rock. Everyone from LA punk was in that as extras. I'm only, I'm in the second movie. I'm not in the the up and smoke. Uh, I'm I'm in the next movie it's called, which is our second movie. And then the third movie, um, nice dreams. I have to, I'm just going to say this, like, because, because my fans have grown to expect this, not on purpose, um, like there's probably not going to be any mentions of Paul on LSD, or I don't know if he ever even took it, but, um, at one point my producer said, does, does, is it a prerequisite for your guests to talk about LSD? So we might be disappointing you this time, but at least we're talking about drug movies and drug references, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not shy about talking about those subjects, although I ha- this is such a crass, thing to say but i feel like all that stuff's going to be in my book oh good no that's great okay but okay so just say the words have you or have you not paul rubens taken lsd i never inhaled let's just say that (laughs) okay (laughs) but i mean i am in two cheech and chong movies and one of the biggest cocaine movies ever so oh my god you're so foxy and blow and do the math um, yeah, I, yeah, that, thank you very much. And I was just telling somebody earlier today that being on the set in that movie, 
I had the best costumes of anybody in that movie, except maybe Penelope Cruz. But I had such a ball making that movie with all the wigs and all the the clothing and stuff that I would, I would literally come on the set every day and the crew would applaud when I would make my entrance and people would be like, dude, I couldn't wait to see what you were going to have on today. You know? And uh, there was like a little period in there where I was wearing caftans and like all the crew guys would be like, Hey man, what's that like? I mean, you basically have a dress on. How is that? You know, how is that comfortable? And I'd be like, yeah, man, this is super comfortable. I love my God, like, like on a kilt, like, like what does what Scotsmen wear under their kilt lipstick? If you're lucky, <laughs> if they're lucky. <laughs> no. Kilts. Yeah. Yeah. I've never worn a kilt, but boy, I loved wearing those caftans. And a, a little bit later in my life, I started, I just went through a very brief period where I started to gain a little bit of weight. And I would catch myself every once in a while thinking like, yeah, you know, this, I can, <laughs> I don't have to do anything about this. I could just simply throw on a caftan pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> and when I would catch myself, I'd be like, all right, stop you know, stop, stop thinking that and stop eating right now. So that, that caftan idea was getting a little bit too comfortable, but that sounds like a way better pandemic outfit. Like we could just imagine that everyone we know was wearing caftans instead of what was probably really going on. Sweatpants. Yeah. That actually, <laughs> actually, like in the beginning of pandemic, I remember I was like, I'm not going to let myself go to hell in pandemic. Like I'm going to just put on makeup and, you know, like, prepare myself like how I would every day to like be in public and then um at at like you know week like like seven or eight or or I mean day to seven or eight or ten I was like yeah I'm doing a pretty good job of this and I was like wait when was the last time I brushed my hair yeah I was doing the same thing I was kind of like I don't think I ever went two days unless I was camping or something where I wouldn't like shower and you know shave and do do all kinds of like grooming and stuff. And then I, in pandemic, I'd be like, I don't know, has it been two days or three days? And then sometimes I'd be like, you know, it may have actually been four days. <laughs> That's what I, but, you I, know, I, I mean, we're not the only people listening to, to this. That they, I mean, this is- No, everyone, everyone was like that. It was, everyone was like growing up beards or letting like their hair not go dyed. Or and what, also oh we weren't going anywhere. So if you, if you stank, like who cares? You weren't seeing anybody. No, but you know what? Um, because I, last week when I had the, the surgery, my, my um, surgeon was like, you can't, you can't like, you know, you can't, take a bath or a shower and I was like not even with like um you know like some plastic around my ankle where the surgery was and he's like no because it could be a fall risk and stuff and then I was like what the fuck how am I going to get like a chair in the bathtub I should have thought of this in a event you know what I mean and then my sister brought me over a bunch of baby wipes so um so I could take like safe hoe baths <laughs> and now every time that I've been like baby wiping off, I just keep going, if they did it in Desert Storm, I could do it. And I feel like I'll, and then I'm, I'm sitting there thinking I took a janky, pretty baby hooker bath, but I've got good makeup on. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> just like, just like any hooker. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes, I agree. I, uh, it's been like a whole other world and culture. 
I mean, yeah, there's, there's like nothing. What about, um, what are you feeling like with stuff like get, you know, opening up or potentially opening up? Because I, I, there's two really distinct camps, like people that can't wait and people that are horrified. And for anyone that's not in California listening, like California has got some of the strictest lockdown. So we, we see news from like other states and people are having like live shows and everything's open, but it's not like that in California. Right at at the time of this recording, which was April. I've been at, I've been to a couple restaurants outdoors, outdoor dining. I've had both shots, so um, I had a rabies and distemper. And uh, <laughs> what about Parvo? Are you covered? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I feel like I'm, you know, yeah, I, I'm ready to come out of it. I think, but yeah, I I feel like. We have to be very careful. And it was clear to me when it first started that we're, you know, life is going to be different from forever. I, I don't think shaking hands is probably ever going to come back. And I think, you know, I don't know when when it first started, a lot of people were telling me, like, you know, Paul, have you ever been to Japan? Like they wear masks all the time in Japan. Yeah. Yeah. And in China, I remember thinking that was so cool and kinky when I was doing dance tours there and all the makeup artists backstage had really cool sort of modern outfits, but they all had masks on. I was like, wow, this is great. And then that, that kind of went away after like week three of pandemic like that. And also when I was, do, when I would do like conventions and just be backstage doing meet and greets and stuff um, on tour, we, you know, we always had hand sanitizer because, you know, oh, yeah. if you're shaking a hundred people's hands, like, you're going to get sick unless you like really, you know, stay kind of focused on that. So I had yeah. in my writer on my tour, I was on a tour when the pandemic closed everything down to celebrate the anniversary of Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And my writer having nothing to do with COVID, my writer had like um, hand sanitizer in it. And so every place we went had a big bottle of hand sanitizer and the security guy kept going like take the hand sanitizer when we'd be leaving the theater and i'd be like we've got a whole suitcase full." and he was like no take it it's gonna it's gonna be smart and when when the tour closed down and i came back to la i had a suitcase a small suitcase full of hand sanitizer when you know all of a sudden hand sanitizer became like gold like it, you couldn't get it yeah, did you get toilet paper? No, I'm just kidding. No, we didn't. Yeah, hand sanitizer. That, that was crazy. I got. Um, you don't need to. You don't need toilet paper if you have hand sanitizer. By the way. Oh, I can't imagine that. That sounds a little bit too hurdy kinky. Yeah. No, no, it is. It's crazy. It reminds me of an old joke my dad used to tell. That it's visual. I can't tell it here. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know you guys. He's gonna tell it to me off air, and um, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna know it, and you guys won't out there in podcast. I'll tell you, you'll never forget it. It's like an awesome joke. My father was really funny and would tell really great jokes. He actually told me that he went to his uh, 50th high school reunion. He was sitting at a table through the whole dinner talking to a friend of his from the track team and the whole night he was telling one dirty joke after another. And at the end of the night, the, the class president up on the stage said, and now to close our show, we're going to hear from the Reverend so-and-so. And it was my dad's friend that he'd been telling dirty jokes to all night. And he, oh didn't, know that he, he didn't know he was a Reverend. 
<laughs> oh my god like that that kilt thing that i told you before was kind of like that i was getting picked up at a dance convention and i don't even know like that the guy that was like you know it was someone's uh, i thought it was like just a volunteer and i was telling him all sorts of dirty kilt jokes and then um when the this the organizer came to greet me she's like hi dad and I was like this is your father and then he just started laughing <laughs> and, and then and then and I was like well, yeah it was so nice to meet your dad and I was being all normal and then I found out he was all happy about it like I was telling him filthy jokes that's funny god sickness okay well I'm trying to think if there's anything else that we should um talk about is there anything that you I mean we me and you could probably go on forever yeah, no, I, I'm I'm good. I don't I don't think I have anything else. I feel like I plugged every single thing I could think of, and and David Bowie was your plus one. How many fucking people can say that? <laughs> I'll tell you. I'll tell you one other thing that I think a lot of people can't say that I'm just writing about in my book is I had two very famous uh, musicians on two separate occasions black out and fall on top of me and pin me to the ground. Just in, in a coincidence? It's a coincidence that they, it happened. They weren't in the same band. Like it wasn't like Keith Richards and Mick Jagger or like. Uh, no, two, like years apart. No, years apart. Okay, who were they? Are you going to say it? I will. The first time it happened to me, I was hosting, co hosting MTV's New Year's Eve party, um, which I did two years in a row. And uh, that's where I met Cindy Lauper, actually, who became a good friend of mine and um i was interviewing joey ramone it was at the beacon theater in new york and i was interviewing joey ramone live on live tv and mid-sentence he just got this look in his eye and blacked out and fell on top of me and i couldn't move i mean he was like dead weight on top of me i had to have somebody this exists somewhere i mean i'll probably find it for my documentary and people will get to see it again I'm going to guess it was probably 85 or 86, maybe 84. It was the, it was, Cindy was just hitting with girls just want to have fun. That's probably 84, I'm guessing. Wow. And then, then years later, like at least a few years later, I'm, I'm going to guess like 86, 87, I was at a party, a huge music party that was really like, I, you know, you were talking about going home and writing everything in your diary. I went home and wrote every single moment of this down because it was like, to this day, one of the most incredible nights ever of, of meeting like I caught people I just idolized. But um, I walked into this, uh, well, I, I walked into this party. I saw a bunch of people that I, you know, was like, oh my God, look at who's in this party. I sat down. 
this girl I was with, her best friend was an A&R person. And I sat down next to her um, and she said, my boyfriend's getting us some drinks. He'll be right back. And when her boyfriend came back down, came back, he sat down between me and her and her boyfriend was Bob Dylan, which oh, wow. I, didn't, I didn't know that her boyfriend was Bob Dylan. And uh, so I met Bob Dylan. And then a little while later, I was using the bathroom and I came out of the bathroom and the ba it must have been like the guest, the powder room in the living off the living room because I opened the door and across the room was the front door of the house and the front door opened and Tom Petty walked in and I had been waiting my entire career to meet Tom Petty because Tom Petty was the first famous person that anyone told me was a fan of Pee Wee Herman. I just remember a few people when I was first starting out, were like, you know, Tom Petty, you know, was a big Pee Wee fan. And I was always, wow, that's so cool. I love Tom Petty. And he was from Florida, where I'm, I was from Florida. And so I was walking across, Tom Petty was walking towards me, and I was walking towards Tom Petty and getting like my adrenaline was pumping. And I was getting ready to blurt out like this story that I'd been rehearsing for years. The only other person I had this story with was when you said peak skill for years, I was waiting to run into, you know, who the other really famous person born in peak skill is right. I don't who Mel Gibson. Oh my God. I didn't know that. Yes. And if you're born in Peekskill, you know stuff like that. And so I was waiting, waiting and waiting to meet Mel Gibson. And when I finally met Mel, Mel Gibson, I was like, Mel, oh, my God, you know, we're both born in Peekskill. And he I, I was like, we're both born. And he finished the sentence. He was like, yeah, Peekskill. I know we're both born in Peekskill. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, know, you, you can't imagine how many people have told me that. Um so I was like walking across this room, get ready to, to just like jump on Tom Petty and go like, Tom, you were the first person I ever heard was, you know, a Pee Wee fan and you're from Florida and I love your band. And, you know, it's just all this stuff. And he walks right up to me, gets this funny look in his face, blacks out, falls down on top of me, out cold. <laughs> I'm like dead weight on me. I can't move. Literally cannot move. Somebody pushes him off, takes my hand, pulls me up into their face. And it's George Harrison. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh my yeah it was like a really and that's the same night i met little richard too it was like really a star-studded amazing amazing night wait aren't you sad that little richard didn't pass out on you i would have killed for that <laughs> well little richard fell on me many times when we were doing uh my christmas special and he, which he guest starred on and we had him um ice skating and we had him like with a pillow tied around him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and he was supposed to fall, but he fell like a whole. I I spent hours with Little Richard falling on on top of this pillow. He was such a trip. I, what a not only my icon, God, but like what a trailblazer. Oh my God! And all what, I I just can't even handle how the amazingness of him ever. My whole entire life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, where did all that come from when you see those early pictures of him, you know? I used to have this theory that um, that Prince and Jimi Hendrix and Little Richard were all the same person in kind of a vampire-y, shape-shifting way. This is super weird and super name-droppery, but at the premiere of Purple Rain, the after party of that movie, 
little Richard was running around that party going, I'm Prince. Prince is me. I'm Prince. Prince is me. Wow. I was kind of thinking like, you know, that's not crazy talk, really. No, it's not. I swear to God. Yeah, you can draw a straight line from Little Richard to Prince with Jimmy Hendrix in the middle. All parts of it. (laughs) You know that I lived with Jimi Hendrix briefly. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love Jimi Hendrix. I never got a chance to see him live and I didn't know him at all, unfortunately. I wish I had. And I wish I I I had you go in there for a second. I think I could have probably kept that going for a few minutes. I Um, think that you really I mean, you could have lived. I could have lived with him. I mean, (laughs) if I would have if I would have, you know, been not like like. 10 or nine or something at the time. Well, maybe you never know. I mean, no. Um, wow. Okay. Well, um, that's it. I don't have another name to drop or another, like, no, I'm going to, can I ruin one of your secrets? This is not a bad secret. Okay. So you guys, you can't even believe the look he just gave me. I have no idea what you're going to say. Well, I I think I, I know that you were roommates with Elvis and Liberace. No. <laughs> um Paul has the best Zoom. I got a tour of his Zoom backgrounds before we started recording the podcast and he's got all the best rooms ever and I, I and he inspired me to do it. So the next time I go on Zoom, I'm going to look like a Romanian drug lord because of like And listen, I feel like I should tell people because I love being informative. Um, and educational. <laughs> I tell people my idea for doing it um, is I go on Instagram. I follow a couple of amazing people who do architect, who show architecture and house interiors and really interesting stuff like that. And anytime I see something that I think like, oh, this would be a good background, I screen grab it and and uh, edit it in Photoshop and flip the image horizontally and then use it as my background. So I have like Liberace's house and, um, you know, all kinds of crazy, really like palaces and anything I see that I think like this would be a great background. I've got like a hundred of them probably. Uh, I love that story. (laughs) Yeah, that's so good. Um, Okay, I have one more house question to ask you. Have you ever been in a haunted house or lived in one or had any paranormal experiences? I don't think so. The only haunted house I've been in is the haunted mansion, which I've been in many, many, many times and love and feel like I know everything about. Um, But no. Uh, And I and I did a voice for the as yet unveiled in fact i don't even think it's finished seance room at the magic castle <gasps> you did wow that's so good that's so yeah but good. It, yeah, I, I don't I, think it's not done yet and, and i don't they're not having like like live shows there yet whoa what was that it's an alarm reminding me to send somebody a birthday text Oh, okay. Well, I, I thought I thought we were having a haunting for a second. <laughs> <laughs> it's a caller from beyond the grave. Yes, it is. The number area code was six six six. All right. Well, um, it's been so amazing to talk to you. It's been really fabulous to talk to you, Paul. You, you guys, 
that was Paul Rubens, a.k.a. Pee Wee Herman, um, spilling it all here on The Devil's Music. And I hope you guys are going to listen to his radio show. And you've, you've got to read the memoir when it comes out. Because seriously, like we barely even scratched the surface. This would be like, this would be like if, um, you know, they had only like just found out that King Tut's tomb was like, accessible but they hadn't seen anything inside it yet so definitely if you have if, if you haven't seen all of paul's movies you gotta you gotta really watch below his he's just extraordinary in a caftan darling and even more extraordinary in real life listen everybody peewee gave up his wish for my happiness and now he's sad yes he's sad because his wish isn't gonna come true Jombie, would you grant Pee-wee his wish? Come on. Come on. Hey. Please, Jombie, please. All right. I'll grant Pee-wee another wish. The Devil's Music is written and hosted by Pleasant Gaiman. Produced by Aaron Alden. All sound design by Jerry Danielson of Busy Signal Studios. And of course, is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Find all of our shows at pantheonpodcasts.com. Our social presence is at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found wherever you get great music. Please pick up these important and fantastic tracks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.